Father in heaven, Lord, we're so thankful today that we can come together and worship you. And we ask that your spirit would be with us to teach us from your word today. And we thank you. We come in Christ's name. Amen. So the parable of the Good Samaritan um, is, of course, one that maybe is familiar to you, but perhaps the context is not. And as I thought about what has gripped many in our nation, in fact, I would say everybody who's not um, uh, tone deaf or can't see, the, uh, the tragedy of watching someone die that was filmed um, and seeing that happen was not only traumatizing, it should be uh, waking us up to the inhumanity of man to man. And I don't know about you, but it led me to search my heart to see if I have uh, love for others like Christ did. And as we look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, this is what it really is dealing with. Um, So let's read the parable now. If you want to turn in your Bibles... It's Luke chapter 10. The entire chapter is actually fits together uh, something very important, but let's just read verse 25 and on. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? Um, What is your reading of it? Kind of like how Jesus does this. The attorney comes to question him, and he questions the attorney. Uh, This is not a bad approach, really. Um, And he is questioning the questioner. And so he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. Now, then it says, But he, that is the young attorney, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? So, this was a good question, because back then, They took this text in Leviticus 19.18 to answer that question. In fact, if Jesus would have uh, answered in a politically correct manner, he would actually have quoted this text, which says, Leviticus 19.18, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I don't know why my program says they people, but it's actually thy people. And so thy people, that was just a cut and paste, by the way, thy people was defining what the neighbor was. So they said, if you want to know who the neighbor is, it's the Jews. That's who the neighbor is. So, love your neighbor as yourself meant love the people within your ethnic group, the Jews, as yourself. As a matter of fact, 
Um, although he was hoping that Jesus would affirm what he had already believed, and that this was uh, the Jews that neighbor was talking about, Jewish belief at that time actually went further and held that this specifically excluded Samaritans and foreigners. So when you say love your neighbor as yourself, it meant love the Jews, but do not love the Samaritans, and do not love Gentiles at all. In response, Jesus told the parable of the Samaritan. It does not say good Samaritan. It says the parable of the Samaritan. Some people suggested by saying good Samaritan, that would be a slur against the Samaritans. Oh, a good Samaritan. Not many of those. So, in the text itself, it says the Samaritan. So this particular parable was actually meant in Jesus' culture to address an issue of racism in that century. That's specifically why he tells the story. Jesus said, A certain man went down to Jerusalem, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, if you've ever walked from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's a winding road that goes down about 2,500 feet. And it's dark. And it was very um, treacherous. Many times people would be robbed then. Now, by chance... Going down that road, a certain priest came down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, the Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And so he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor? Jesus now coming back to his comment about the neighbor. Which was neighbor? Um... To him who fell among the thieves. And the rich, or that uh, lawyer said, he who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Now this should get our attention because it was specifically speaking about a racial disparity. And when Jesus told the story, the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. They were mortal enemies, and this had developed over several hundred years' time. Actually, when the northern kingdom had apostatized and gone after Jeroboam, 
he had set up an altar. When we go on trips to Jerusalem, we should go sometime, that altar is still there. And they had their own setup, and the Samaritans were part of the ones that followed that. And so every Jew says, look, you know, they were part of a schismatic thing. And by the way, then they started intermarrying with some of the Assyrians, and they said, by the way, they're intermarrying. And they had a whole list of reasons why they should not associate with Samaritans and why they should hate them. And these are some other reasons. While Caponius was procurator in AD 6 through 9, some Samaritans secretly joined some Jewish Passover pilgrims and entered the temple with them. Once inside the temple, they desecrated it by spreading human bones in the porticos and in the sanctuary. The only thing worse you could do is to take a pig, which some people did later on. And so they said, you see what Samaritans do? This is the worst possible desecration. And if one Samaritan did it, all the Samaritans will do it. I tell you, they're no good. They're bad. Another thing happened in AD 51. Now, I recognize that some of these things happened after the story of the Good Samaritan, but Luke was probably not read until right around the time this happened. Because the first two books of the Bible were written were 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And then you later on had the Gospels coming out. And some who have studied the chronology of the Gospels believe that this story would have been fresh in the minds immediately after Luke was written, or very close to when Luke was, you know, um, hot off the press. AD 51, people from Samarian village of Ganae murdered one or more Jewish pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. Bad enough they went and put bones in there. Early on, that was everybody's mind. It's probably a story they told. But now, they're killing some pilgrims. And so the Jews, they, they protested. They appealed to the Roman rulers for justice, but the Romans ignored them. And so, guess what they did? An overwhelming mob from Jerusalem then went down to Ganae, massacred all the inhabitants, and burned the village to the ground. Probably did some looting, too. At this point, the Romans intervened. They arrested and executed several of the Jews involved. Not too many, just several. But this was a turning point between Roman and Jewish relations. In fact, the scholars say that the Jews, driven by their, their hatred for the Samaritans and the fact the Romans helped them in any way, began to rise up, and it led finally to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And this event is seen as the turning point, and it's at this time that the Gospel of Luke, written by a physician who wants to heal a hurting world, says the only way we're going to heal this world is by listening to this parable. How many think that sounds kind of intense? So now this parable is actually uh, maybe a little more relevant to us today. Number two, the, story, 
story challenged the perceived morality of Jews and their religious leaders. There were other stories out there, other parables circulating at the time. I have a book in my library called They Also Taught in Parables, which looks at all the parables. And by the way, this is not really a parable. It's actually able to be literally applied. It's actually an example story. Call it a parable, but it's not symbolic. (laughs) It actually was literally applied in that day in people's mind. But these particular stories were like this. Example number one. Excuse me, a rabbi helping a leper. So a rabbi helping a leper. I mean, that sounds good. But made the rabbi look pretty good. And that was circulating. Number two, a rabbi helping a shipwrecked Roman soldier. Now, I wouldn't help a Samaritan, but they're helping these other, and it makes them look good. And these were the typical stories. Let me tell you about how Pastor Don did all these great things. Anyway, let me tell you about what Mark Finley did. Let me tell you about what the pastor did what the leader did. These were the stories. And this story that Jesus tells (laughs) was different. These stories proved how trustworthy and compassionate and virtuous the rabbis were. Jesus' parable parable flipped the popular narratives on their head. And who is the hero in Jesus' parable? A Samaritan. The race that the Jews hated. It was very uncomfortable. Very uncomfortable parable. It actually is an example story. So what did the story teach? Loving your neighbor is to transcend all racial and cultural boundaries. That's what it teaches. So, you know, we talk in the Advent movement, rightly so, about at the end of time, the greatest revelation at the end of time will be a revelation of the character of God's love. Here is the patience of the saints. They're patient under any situation. Here they, they keep the commandments, and they have the faith of Jesus. And because they have that, they're able to say, here they are. Here is the patience of the saints. Here they are. Here's those that keep the commandments. And have the faith of Jesus. In other words, you put them in any high-pressure situation. Hupapomone, that word patience, is under extreme pressure. How many think there's been some pressure building in this nation, in the world? How many think there's been any pressure building? How many of you felt any pressure? Some might say there hasn't been this much pressure in a long time. Since the Depression, some people say it's even worse than the Depression. Of course, not the people that got a pay raise like RJ, but other people. <laughs> I just don't know. You know, when he was sharing that, I was like, yeah, okay, so we're probably going to have a bunch of mob people come and take him and take his money. But you better watch out on that road to Jericho. So, um, um, but a lot of people haven't had that situation. All kinds of people. And people are getting frustrated. Plus, they were locked at home for a long time. So you have this kind of powder keg 
and extreme pressure that maybe some of us don't appreciate because we have a better situation. But how many think we should probably think about that a little bit? Think about other people, not just ourselves. So loving your neighbor is to transcend all racial and cultural boundaries. Some people have said that church service on the weekend is the most racially divided time in the nation. Thankfully here at Weimar Institute, I see red, yellow, black, and white, all presses into sight here today. About 40% of our staff are non-white. And same thing with our student body, very diverse. And I like that. Um, when I was in the seminary, uh, I actually liked African-American churches better than Anglo churches because they would say amen more often. Amen? amen? And they would say that too. They would go, go on with it. And you know, I said, you know, you need to be in that kind of a church if you want some response. I mean, the others look like, you know, pupils dilated, that's it, they're dead. So, and, um, and, you know, and, but we're supposed to transcend all racial and cultural barriers. I mean, as I worked in Chicago as a nurse, or I was training to be a nurse, one of the assignments I had was to work in the inner city and they have people of every ethnic background, and I was going to visit this African-American family. They had diabetes, and they had some, the cubit eye that needed the dressings changed. And I was going down there to change the dressings. The week before, someone had gone down there of my color and had knocked on the wrong door and had been killed. Another nurse had been shot. So they told me, you know, be very careful. So I was very careful. I put on my... I put on my overcoat, had my stethoscope on, uniform. Unfortunately, my overcoat was the, was the wrong color. It was the color of a certain gang. I didn't know that. And so I was walking down there, and I was, first of all, white. I'm very white. Nobody can see that I'm white. Plus, I'm wearing gang colors that are the wrong gang colors, and I didn't even know it. I'm walking down there, and all of a sudden, I had these 12 people start following me. And they don't look like they're out for, you know, uh, my good. In fact, there's some other people coming along, and I go, I'm in trouble. I can't turn around to go back to my car because they're there. And so I, my only hope is to go to my, my place of work. And I go there, and I come down the street. And I'm so thankful someone believed this. Loving your neighbor is to transcend all racial and cultural boundaries. Because as I came around the corner, the lady I was about to visit, she was watching for me to come to take care of the family member. And she starts, she assesses the situation rapidly. And she says, you leave my doctor alone. You leave my doctor alone. I didn't mind being called a doctor at that point. <laughs> I actually took my stethoscope out and I just held it up. Stethoscope power, and held that up. And you know what? In that society, it was a matriarchal society. 
They, start, they talk to each other. She said, don't talk to each other. You just leave my doctor alone. And they left. And I went into her house. And I said, thank you for loving your neighbor as yourself. I don't think I said that. I didn't know this. The lawyer, according to Christ, was misreading the text concerning the neighbor. Well, not the Jews only. It was every, every culture. Jesus' plan was not to make an ethnic Jewish nation great again. He was not handing out T-shirts or hats saying, make Jerusalem great again. In fact, this is exactly what the disciples wanted. Look in Acts chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. By the way, the book of Acts is driven by this story. Luke is written by Luke. And Acts is written by Luke. And notice what you find in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And by the way, you see Jesus after he's resurrected. He's going, verse 3, doing many infallible proofs during 40 days, speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Being assembled together with him, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This is the early rain. How many think we need the latter rain? Praying for the Holy Spirit. And then notice what it says. Therefore, when they had come together, they said, Lord, will you at this time make Israel great again? Will you restore Israel? Ethnic Israel. Religious, ethnic Israel. And he said to them, It is not for you to know times and seasons, which the Father has said in his own hand. Now notice this next text. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem. They like that. And into Judea. Oh, they like that. And... Samaria! Because if you can reach the Samaritans, you can go to the end of the world. If you can get over your racial issues with the Samaritans, you can reach anybody. Profound implications. Based on this story. So A, loving your neighbor is to transcend all racial and cultural boundaries. B, negative generalizations about Samaritans, about any race, as being inferior, were to be completely abandoned. Darwinian thought actually aided and abetted social comparisons. This is the foundation of the evolutionary theory and still impacts cultures that have bought into that bogus theory today. Amen. 
This is why the first angel's message says, fear God and give him glory. Worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the fountains of living water, the doctrine of creation. But it also says the gospel will be preached as a witness to all the nations, to every kindred, tribe, tongue, and people, except the Samaritans. Is that what it says? No. This is why the Adventist church is one of the most racially diverse churches in America. In fact, it is. Not that it doesn't have problems. I don't know if you mentioned, uh, listened to Dr. Fedidis's sermon last night, but if you didn't, you should. Excellent sermon. And if you haven't read his dissertation, you should read that too. And then we'll eat. <laughs> it's a lot of reading. I'm just a little joke there. But his dissertation looked at how there was genocide between the Hutus and the Tutsis in Rwanda. And it asked the question of the Catholics and the Pentecostals and the Seventh-day Adventists, how could that happen? And how do we make a difference? All right. Jesus' story demonstrates that love for our neighbors should transcend all racial, national, social, and economic boundaries. Um, it's kind of interesting. I should read you a statement like this. I'll look it up on my Facebook page since I didn't put it in here, the notes. Um, listen to this quote from the pen of inspiration, the book Christ Object Lessons, page 386. No distinction on account of nationality, race, or class, or caste, rather, is recognized by God. He is the maker of all mankind. Some people say, well, don't quote Ellen White. Quote the Bible. Ellen White is always quoting the Bible. When you quote Ellen White, you may be ignorant of how she's quoting the Bible. But my discipline is always to go back and see how she is quoting the Bible. What she's saying, he is the maker of all men, is Genesis 1, 26 and 27. No distinction on nationality, race, or caste? That's Luke 10. We're just reading the story right then. All men are one family by creation and one through redemption. Acts 17. They're all of one blood, and they're all saved by the blood. Christ came to demolish every wall of partition, to throw open every compartment of the temple. Can you show that in the Bible? Sure. Ephesians chapter 2, Matthew 27, that every soul may have free access to God. God was wanting everyone to be able to go to the temple and everyone to be able to go and meet in the synagogue. And in fact... When the Jewish Christians began to believe the way Jesus taught, they started to head to the synagogue until they put in what was called the 18th benediction that started to keep people out. It was radically changing Judaism when Christ the Jew turned the tables. 
So the story teaches to love your neighbor as defined of anybody <laughs> that's human, or as Brother Narland eloquently said, the human race. Negative generalizations about Samaritans as being inferior were to be abandoned. And the story was meant to reshape the worldview of those who read it. It was also a call to specific action. It was not a call necessarily for protesting. Not that there's not a place for protesting. I mean, Jesus turned the tables over in the temple, but I don't think he called 10,000 people to help him do that. At least I don't remember that. Um, it's not enough to feel compassion. Remember, the priest went by, and the Levite went by, and they probably felt maybe compassion. I don't know. Maybe they had some kind of feelings. But the point of the story is they did nothing. They passed by. Feelings are not enough. How many of you have felt bad this last week? How many of you felt bad to see someone die? I hope you didn't feel good. I mean, look, watching that, and I forced myself to watch it, was horrific. Seeing someone die. I don't care what they did. <laughs> that was evil. And I have some pretty strong feelings about it. But feelings are not enough. So I'm preaching a sermon about it. <laughs> it's an action. And that's not enough either, probably. The Samaritan, however, not only felt compassion, but physically <clears throat> helped the victim. We are known as an institute to heal a hurting world. We're a church that was set up to model medical missionary work in the context of sharing the gospel. Total community involvement is meant to help anybody in the community, right? It actually was based on a study of Luke 10. When we studied Luke 10, we said, we're not doing that. When I first came here to Weimar, people in the community, most of them didn't even know that we don't know what's behind those gates. What do you guys do back there? We eat vegan food. Really, what's that? No, you know, I had a lot of interesting conversations 10, 12 years ago when I got here. And since that time, God has led on many different people. Opened a clinic. Now 40,000 people come through our gates. I think that's a good thing. How many think that's a good thing? And they actually have a sign up front for Suboxone which means it's not everybody that's just perfect. Their life is not perfect. If they need Suboxone, the life is not perfect. How many of you know what Suboxone is? So, but I, I want you to notice something here. It was not necessarily political action and protests. Jesus didn't foment that. You don't see that. What you see is a call for personal involvement with somebody. Personal involvement with somebody. Let's say that together. 
personal involvement with somebody that you may feel uncomfortable being involved with. They're not my type. We don't have much in common. Oh, really? Maybe that's the very person you should reach out to. He went to him, it says in the text. He went to him. <laughs> that alone is something that's very hard for us to do sometimes. Yes or no? We like people to come to us. But he went to them or to him. And by the way, it was because they were going down the same road. He didn't get bused to another city. It was in the context of his own situation. In the therapy of his own peripatomai, his own walking around, his own walking around. It was in his thing. Now, here at Weimar, we've tried to be more intentional. Intentional? I like that word. How many like that? Intentional. Don't hate on me. This is a new word for a new culture we're creating. So, intentional action, because we said, look, when we read the parable of the Good Samaritan, we said, we're not doing that. And that's why we said, as a leadership team and then others, we need to be involved in total community involvement. It's really sick for us to stay here every day. We need to go out in our communities. And we had a number of guiding statements for that. How many think that was probably a good, good idea? So he went to him. He hired a nurse to bandage his wounds. Not yet. He first starts out himself. He bandaged his wounds. He poured on oil and wine. So, an antibiotic <laughs> and the healing aspects of oil. He set him in his own Tesla, his own Honda, his own Yugo, his own Rent-A-Wreck. He used his own what? Vehicle. You don't worry if there's blood on it. Use his own vehicle. How many of you think this is a very powerful story? It's an example story. He brought him to the inn. He took care of him. He funded his hospital stay. He put treatment plans and procedures in place and maybe policies to help with his future care. It wasn't until the last two that we usually show up. Oh yeah, I feel bad about it. I'll send some money. I'll say it with flowers. That's a far away, isn't it? So my question to me this week was, 
in what way in my life am I engaging with people that haven't got a share a fair shake in life? How am I involved in that? Let me think that's a good question to ask. How am I modeling that for my kids? So, I hate this one. This, this is not Bill's in here. <laughs> it's <probably> crazy. <laughs> Sorry about that. I asked someone else to help me with this, and I'm very thankful for their help. But they took, or some way that bills came. I'm not going to accuse them. I thank, I thank you very much for helping me, whoever did this. If you're watching, and uh, I apologize for almost saying you did something wrong. The story was meant to reshape the worldview of those who read it. It's also called Specific Action. No, that's the next one. Sorry. All right. Now you can see how you do this. Add an effect. Wipe. Not all at once, but by paragraph. How many of you are thankful you learned that? So what kind of actions did you and I take? I don't know. I mean, the Holy Spirit has to lead each of us. But number one, I want to show you something interesting. Some of us are taking the step of baptism today. Look with me in Luke chapter 3. Who wrote the book of Luke? Who wrote the book of Acts? What's my name? It's not Luke. Just seeing if you're still awake. Okay, so who wrote the book of Acts? And he wrote the book of Luke. And in Luke, he's talking about baptism, about how things change in life. Some people say, look... I have always had anger towards an ethnic group. That's never going to change. That's just the way I am. I've always eaten the same thing. That's just the way I am. I always drink the same thing. That's the way I am. And Luke chapter 3 says no. Verse 3, he went into the region around Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. Repentance literally metanos, to change the mind, and then remission, putting yourself in a new environment. As it had written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. This is not talking about a road work project. So not talking about how this is not an excavator text. How to use heavy lifting equipment to make a highway. It's using that metaphor, but what's it talking about? Changing the massive mountains of pride in your life and bringing that pride down. Taking the massive valleys of despondency and despair that you feel like victimized you and so you do things wrong because you felt you were mistreated. It's taking those and filling them up. It's taking your adverse childhood experiences and saying they're not an excuse. Because when God comes in, your mind changes. Not only does it change, but you want to be with those 
and reach others to be a part of those who are living in remission from sin in the midst of a sinful environment. And that is the same picture as Revelation 14, 12. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments. Here are they that have the faith of Jesus. It's only by the faith of Jesus. It's only by the gift of Jesus. It's only by that miracle that this can happen. And that's why it says, and all flesh shall see the salvation of Weimar. No, it doesn't say that. All flesh shall see the salvation of God. They're going to say, wait a minute. That racial bigot has changed. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like John Newton. He once put his neck, his knees to the necks of thousands of slaves. But now he's changed. And you, you say, wait a minute, you're making too much out of it, Pastor. You're not connecting the dots correctly. No, 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 no. This is exactly what Luke is saying, because look down. Four groups come out to be baptized. All of them want to have remission and repentance of sin. And they start to ask a question. What must I do? What must I do? What must I do? And he begins to actually identify. Look at these groups. Verse 10, and by the way, this is the key baptismal question. What shall we do then? Verse 11, he answered and said to them, He that has two tunics, give to one who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. So he's talking about their dress. He's talking about their diet. What shall we do then? Say the tax collectors in verse 12. He said, collect more than, no more than what's appointed to you. Don't price gouge. and Don't try and take advantage of situations. And then comes the next group. Here it is. The police officers of the day, verse 14. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, what shall we do? And he said, do not, do not, do not intimidate anyone. Or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. What? 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 Actually, John the baptizer is addressing law enforcement of his day. And he's saying, the only thing that's going to change you is laws and protests. Is that what he's saying? He's not saying that at all. He's saying those are actually kind of fruitless. The thing that really changes you is being born again of water and of the Spirit. And then there's stories about the centurion who believed just because Jesus said something. There's stories about law enforcement that are converted. The issue with law enforcement is not to make a, a list of rules of things they shouldn't do. The issue with law enforcement is they just need to be converted. How many of you are thankful for law enforcement? I'm very thankful for law enforcement. How many are, um, look, I didn't see too many hands. How many are thankful for law enforcement? This is not right to say, we're going to get rid of all the warmth, they're all bad. No, that's a, just a bad, that's a bad way, that's a, that's a worse way to think about a worse situation. The issue is, and what's happening here is these people are coming and they realize they need to be converted. They say, 
what shall we do then? He doesn't say, do marches and protests across the country. No, that's like superficial. Very superficial. He says what? Be converted. Be baptized. Have the Holy Spirit come into your life. And then Jesus comes out. He's baptized in verse 22. And then what does he do after he's baptized? Chapter 4, verse 18. He comes and he's on the Sabbath day, verse 16. He breaks out the prophet Isaiah. And then he says this, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. When does the Spirit come on him? At his baptism in a more marked way. Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. What? The Pharisees were all about the rich man. <laughs> the poor! And he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. You know, in this nation, what's causing all the anger is really deep down brokenheartedness. Well, we can look at it superficially and say, oh, look, at that's terrible. But why don't we look at it realistically? And this is not any particular color. When people are angry, and there's a lot of people angry that are not just of any particular color. There's all kinds of people angry today. But it goes back down to something deeper many times. Brokenheartedness. Heal the brokenheartedness. How many think that this is the whole idea of the church? And to proclaim liberty to the captives. Liberty to the what? To the enslaved and incarcerated. And by the way, not just people in jail are incarcerated. Some people are enslaved to money. They're workaholics. They're enslaved to their dream of what they should look like. They're captives just as much as anybody else. and recovery of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Wow. So how many think baptism might be a prerequisite for moving forward? In some cases, rebaptism might be good. Specific social action focused on church members. Look with me back now at Acts. Acts chapter 6. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. I was just doing a series for, camp meeting series for Michigan Conference this week. I did tape six messages. And as I was studying for that, I was going through the 2300 day prophecy and seeing how, I was showing how God has a practical element for each aspect of that prophecy. And this, is, this hit me with a special power. Acts chapter 7. Now it's 6. This is where the 70-week prophecy comes to an end. And this also, by the way, is the prophetic insight for TCI. But here it is, Acts chapter 6. Now in those days, when the number of disciples were multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. What? The Hebrews by the Hellenists. What's that saying? Greeks, which are foreigners, versus what? 
Jews. Hebrews. Because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. What do you call that? Racism based on ethnicity. Don't tell me the New Testament doesn't talk about this. It talks about it throughout. So then what happens? The twelve summoned the multitude of disciples and said, This is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from you seven faithful men, good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we appoint over this business. We will give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, and the saying pleased the multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nictor, and Timnon, and Parmenus, and Nicholas, and a proselyte from Antioch whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed over them, they laid hands on them. And what were they doing? Meals on wheels for the entire group, every ethnic group. This was a definitive thing that was so impressive, verse 7, that the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the what? Priests believed. Why did they believe? So look, here's a church that is not doing the same old, same old when it comes to partitions between Hebrews and Hellenists. This has got to be God doing that. This is God. That mountain has come down. That valley is filled. All flesh see the salvation of God in the church polity. We're going to join that church. How many of you think God wants to have a revival in his church? Well, I'm all for people talking, look, this is the scenario. We got coronavirus. We got this and that. And they have all the scenarios. And they say, this is it. God's coming. God is not coming anytime when we have racial disparities that we decide we're going to hold on to. He's not coming. But he came in Acts 6 through the power early reign, power. He came then and he says, I'll pour out my spirit again at the end of time. You guys are really silent. I'm getting nervous. This must be either you're convicted or you think this too shall pass. Look, I think this is the time to actually talk about this. <laughs> okay, so baptism, specific social action, not, not just kind of willy-nilly. They said, okay, here's a specific task. This is what we're going to do. I noticed that Lincoln, some of the Adventist church and some others, in their communities are doing things in their communities. We try to do things in ours, but could we think about other ways to be totally socially engaged? This morning we had our, our, our study group for the community. We've got to keep doing that. We've got to keep reaching out. They're wanting to share that. and We've got many platforms. How many think we need to just think about ways to build on that? Then, specific global evangelistic and education activity Luke chapter 10. Go back now to the story of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. It's not enough to talk about it, feel about it. 
It's personalized or family-involved action of some kind. And notice something that you may not have noticed before. I know I certainly didn't until I did. I never notice things until I do. So look at Luke chapter 10, verse 1. After these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also. Now watch it say in your margin there. Some margins say 72. And there it says 70. Okay, so 72 or 70. And sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where himself was about to go. So, verse 17, the 70 returned with joy, saying, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Here's the point of Luke chapter 10. (laughs) Yeah, you want to mobilize? I'm not talking about hundreds of people getting together, waving placards. It's going yourself two by two and sharing the gospel. What exactly does that mean? Verse 2 and 3. The harvest is great, the laborers are few. Pray the Lord of harvest to send out laborers. And then basically they're doing medical missionary work and they're heading out into the community. And then basically he says, I saw Satan, verse 18, fall like lightning from heaven. On earth, people are getting released from these demonic ideas and ways they think. And in heaven, Satan doesn't have as much access, which means he can't be up there at that point, he's saying, look, not, everything you're doing is nothing. He's an accuser of the brethren. He's saying, no, 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 get out of here. These are Job-like people. <laughs> How many think we need that to happen? That's the setting of the story of the Good Samaritan. Specific global evangelistic and education outreach. I'm always concerned when people spend all their time with the same people and are never reaching out to anyone else. Could that ever happen here? Could that ever happen here? Could that ever happen here? Specific global evangelists, the whole idea is to heal a hurting world. 72 hours sent out. Why why the number 70 or 72? Any any ideas? Because the speed limit is 70? It's actually from Genesis chapter 10. Isn't it something to sing about? She's actually texting some of the message. That's what that means. That wasn't a phone call. Here's the thing. In Genesis chapter 10, how many nations are listed for Babel? Seventy. And what Luke is saying in the book of Acts chapter 2 and also here is that God wants to reverse the curse of Babylon. And he wants to call people out of Babylon. And how is he going to do that? By the way, that is the second angel's message applying the first angel's message in the context of the third angel's message. And how is he going to do that? By having a good Samaritan 
mentality. Not just a mentality, actuality. You can sit around and put all your scenarios together you want. I think it's a waste of time. Or you can go out. I did put a scenario together for you today, to be honest, but go out and actually start reaching people. How many think that might be a good idea? As an individual, as a family, as a person. Genesis 10 was the number of the nations in the world. The gospel is to be life-changing, and it was bring a reversal of Babel, fall of Babylon, if you will. All the way through the book of Acts, I won't belabor it, but outside of Luke Acts, the Samaritans only mentioned twice in the New Testament, in Matthew and in John 4. John 4 is a great, another story about reaching Samaritans. Luke, however, has six Samaritan episodes. Jesus rebukes James and John, wanting to fall down fire from heaven on the Samaritan village and says, you know, that's not the right spirit. Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. Ten lepers are healed. The only one who comes back to actually thank God is a Samaritan. You can see how Luke, the physician, the only true bona fide card-carrying physician in the New Testament is really into this. Jesus tells the disciples to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria. The familiar of Jesus' words, Philip, Peter, and John preach in Samaria, and many believe and are filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's the changing point. Acts chapter 8, they got it. They now have actually been able to reach the Samaritans, and they're fitted then to reach the entire world. Where is your prejudice? Where is your problem? I don't know. But they reached their problem, and then they could reach the world. And the Holy Spirit was poured out in early rank power. They were baptized, not just in reality, not just in water, but in reality. Paul travels through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem Council. He tells the brothers there how the Gentiles have been converted. And the Samaritan brothers, Acts 53, rejoice. Probably a contrast to those in Jerusalem. They're not very excited. Look, he's reached all the Samaritans. We didn't ever want those kind of people in our church anyway. Clearly, in the Gospel of Luke, the Samaritans play an important role in his theology, especially regarding the expansion of the Gospel. And could we be in a moment similar to that today? Bottom line, when the dominion of God breaks into Human lies and situation, old prejudices pass away and a new and shocking pattern of behavior comes to pass. How many think that God needs to do a new thing in our hearts? How many think he needs to do a new thing in the hearts of many people in this nation, no matter what color they are? Well, this is the story of Luke chapter 10. And there's my notes in short form. But Luke chapter 10. <laughs> I, I just want to close with this. You know, um, like I said the other day, I don't care where you're coming from. And you, there's a lot of talk here, but the last words of George Floyd. God, please 
Please, I can't breathe. Please, man, please. Please, 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 I can't breathe. I'm about to die. I can't breathe. My face, please. I can't breathe. Please. There's knees on my neck. I can't breathe. I will get in the car. I will, but I can't move. Mama. Mama. I can't. There's a knee on my neck. I'm through. I'm through. My stomach hurt. My neck hurts. Everything hurts. Just give me some water, please. Please. I can't believe. I can't breathe, officer. You're going to kill me. They're going to kill me. I cannot breathe. I cannot breathe. They're going to kill me. Please. I can't breathe. He never speaks another word. Now to hear it is one thing, but to watch it is even more horrible. More horrible. The officer stays in position, compressing his neck for four more minutes after that last word. And at that time, the crowd says, check his pulse, please. He's not moving. Can you call the police on the police? Did they just kill him? He's black, they don't care. Isn't that the most horrible thing you could ever hear? But you know, there was another son. Who was not like George Floyd. He was perfect. He never counterfeited a $20 bill. He never did anything wrong. He went about doing good. He was an only son. Came down to this world. And you can read about it throughout the Gospels. When he started helping people, and started addressing the disparities, he was not well received by his family, by his supposed friends. And they took him through a number of court cases and they condemned him to death. And nobody stepped up to help him. Some sort of did. A black man, Simon of Cyrene, carried his cross. They came to the place of execution, and everybody deserted him. 
And the crucifixion was meant to make sure people couldn't breathe after a while. But really killed him was not the fact that he couldn't breathe. He died of a broken heart. And I think that story, more than George Floyd's story even, is the story we need to focus on. Because that story is the only thing that will bring healing to the other story. If we accept what he did, that's the story that brings healing. He entered into the pain. He entered into the suffering. In all our afflictions, he was afflicted. The man of Isaiah 53, the man of sorrows, the faith of Jesus that he demonstrated. He didn't say, start a riot. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And even the soldiers said, never a man spoke like this. And not only a great number of the priests believed, but a great number of the soldiers believed. Our job, my job, is to point people taking nothing away from the pain and agony which is reprehensible and having the deepest sympathy and care. But in the midst of that, my job is to point people to the man of Calvary. And the way to point people to the man of Calvary is not necessarily a Bible study. It's dying to myself and my normal procedures. Will I just say within my little circle of friends, will, will I die to that comfort and will I reach out? How will I tangibly put wounds and bandage the wounds? How will I tangibly reach out? How will I sacrificially serve? How will I give physically? How will I give emotionally? How will I give mentally to bring healing to a hurting world? Who will I reach? These are the questions I've been asking. And that's where I am at this point. How many think we should be praying and asking those questions? Lift high the cross in tangible ways. And as we do that, what's that number? 362. As we do that, God can honor it. Let's not get sucked into other things that may seem well-meaning. Father in heaven, the cross was not a glorious tree like we just sang when Jesus hung on it. It showed that he was accursed, that he was worse than a Samaritan, a Gentile. It took six centuries 
before anybody ever wore a cross or put a cross on a steeple. But as the song sang, when we see what you did on the cross, we can become newborn soldiers of the crucified. We're in a battle, an end-time battle. And the battle is not about what other people are doing. It's about what we're not allowing you to do in our own hearts. So Lord, work in my own heart. Work in our hearts. As we go to this glorious baptism now, may you baptize each of us anew. In Christ's name, amen and amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.